The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is the future of the future with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to transform industries. And importantly, they'll discuss how these technologies and strategies can shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. I always say it, I always mean it, and it is absolutely true. What is the buzz today? Well, let's check. Okay, an interesting quote from the late, and I shall say the greatest, Muhammad Ali. If you don't know who he is, formerly Cassius Clay. He is ranked the greatest athlete of the 20th century by Sports Illustrated. He was an American professional boxer and activist, and just read up on him if you're too young to remember him. Sports person of the century by the BBC. Woohoo! And here is the quote. This is a quote that is something for all of us to live by. Muhammad Ali said, impossible is not a fact. It is an opinion. Just let that sink in. Words to live by. So what are we talking about today? Let's take a look backwards before we take a look forward because this is the future of the future with game changers. So technology was advancing quickly in the early 1900s. We saw the advent of cable telegraph, telephones, cars, Cars, electrical lighting, they were becoming prevalent in the early 1900s. And guess what? The Wright brothers, airplanes were just invented. However, parts of the world remained unmapped and undiscovered. And the biggest prizes were who got to the North Pole first? Who got to the South Pole first? Who got to the top of Mount Everest first? But technology... Not so much of a help in those days. So if we look back at the harrowing life and death decisions made by, today we're going to focus on the Antarctic. If we look back on how the first explorers got there, how did they survive? How did they cope with extreme environments? How did they give us some lessons we can use in our own decision making today? Come on, it's, what is it, year? Is it 2017 already? We're less than... Three years from 2020, the year I talk about often in our crystal ball predictions at the end of all of our Game Changers shows. So to get to the South Pole, it required pure human strength and ingenuity by men. You may know these names, Robert Scott, Ernest Shackleton, Roald Amundsen, and many others who braved the hostile environment. Their decisions weren't all good, but they had to make them sometimes in a split second in extreme conditions. You and I and everyone we know would not even have, we, we wouldn't even come up with how we could survive without our modern technology. But very few men died. How is this possible? We're going to talk today to the authors, the co-authors of a very special book called When Your Life Depends on It. We're going to be discussing decision-making stories from Antarctic heroes. My two very special guests are Brad Borkin, who happens to work at SAP, one of my colleagues. He's on the strategic global marketing team, and David Herzl, his co-author. So let's get started 
with the opening quote from Brad Borkin, and it's a quote from Winston Churchill. I'm not even going to tell you who Winston Churchill is. You all know. Success is walking from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Brad, welcome. I'm delighted to have you. This is your series. You're the sponsor, and this is your first time on radio with me. Seriously, Brad Borkin, how are you? Great. Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks for having me on the show. We are delighted. Talk to me about, well, tell me a little bit about your book. I know you have a history of being enamored of exploration of the Antarctic. Uh, just give us a little background, and then let's tackle the quote from Winston Churchill. So go ahead, Brad. Okay. Well, uh, our book is, is called When Your Life Depends on It, Extreme Decision-Making Lessons from the Antarctic. And what it contains is a whole series of wonderful amazing survival stories of these explorers who went down to Antarctica in the early 1900s. And what Dave and I did was we, rather than looking at expedition by expedition or looking at it chronologically or looking at it by personality, we looked at it from the life and death decisions that that were made on the ice. And then we said, what can we learn from these life and death decisions? We may not in our personal lives be making these decisions, but modern life has certain things that are thrown at us certain types of adversity and certain things. And there's lessons that can be learned about uh, about uh, willpower and teamwork and leadership and never giving up that just resonate through these stories. And even though they happened 100 years ago, have resonance today. And I think this is the power and excitement that our book brings, brings to people. And it's lessons that can be used for modern-day living but modern-day business as well. Thank you, Brad. And and now you picked a very interesting quote from Churchill. Success is walking from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. This, Brad, is almost the story of a lot of the explorers you and David cover in your book. Walking from failure to failure, from extreme to extreme, from hostile to hostile, from I'm not even going to make it without two bites of a chocolate candy bar and one cracker in my pocket to go 26 miles in minus 30 degree weather. Walking from failure to failure, and they kept on. So, Brad, why do, I know I just related it to the topic, but why don't you uh, give us your own interpretation of the quote, why you picked it for our show today? Sure. That, that's, that's a great, great explanation of it. And, and I think if we look at some of the, the chronology of, of the expeditions, and the first person who went down to Antarctica to start exploring the interior of Antarctica was uh, Robert Scott in, 19, in the early, early 1900s. So you're talking around 1903. And they, um, his expedition, his goal was to get to within uh, 347 miles of the South Pole, which is the 85th uh, measure of latitude. So they only achieved, he went down with two other men, uh, actually, his team was, was Edward Wilson and, and Ernest Shackleton. The three of them were walking, and this is literally walking, pulling a sledge, using the British term sledge, not sled, uh, of supplies behind them across this incredibly tough terrain, but they only got to within 480 miles of the South Pole. So they didn't achieve their goal. Mm-hmm. Then the next expedition, Shackleton goes they all go back, they, and, and through, it's a bit of a long story, but basically Shackleton goes back on the next expedition. He leads the expedition. His goal is to get to the South Pole, and he, gets, he doesn't quite get there. He gets to within 97 miles of the South Pole and then has to turn around. And that's a fascinating story we'll probably cover during, during this conversation. Amundsen then decides he wants to go to the North Pole, but he, the North Pole's already been discovered by Cook and Perry, 
and he starts heading south. So he doesn't achieve his goal either because he's, his goal was the North Pole, and he's head south. And, the, and it just goes on and on. The, the whole, you can go through the entire history of, of early Antarctic exploration. No one achieves their goals, but they all achieve good things. And I think that's, that's uh, a, a wonderful message coming from, from the book. Success is not necessarily based on achieving the goal that you set out for, but it may be achieving a different goal. And the walking that... very clearly. It, it yes. was literally walking very great distances. The distance from the coast to the, to the South Pole is 850 miles. Wow. Brad, do you think we've gotten lazy because of all of our technology today, where today somebody would prepare for that walk? They would say, well, I've got my GPS. Well, I've got my, my, uh, my um, I don't know, my LED warmed goggles, and I've got my special infrared gloves, and I've got uh, infrared vision on, and I've got uh, three people are tracking me from some north from some south pole station do you think that we've gotten lazy today because we're so excited about the technology that can help with these expeditions that we don't rely on instinct anymore just a quick yes or no and a one sentence answer because i don't want to keep david waiting what do you think it's hard to say but i would say one thing that that is quite interesting we talk about all this new technology and think about insulate modern day explorers are moving away from some of the modern modern materials like Finsulite, and going back to the materials that the early explorers used, which was Burberry cloth, cloth, cloth garments made out of Burberry, made by Burberry, where when you perspire in the Antarctic, because you, you, either you're, you're doing hard work, and when you perspire, it, it, it evaporates better in cloth garments than in Finsulite. So that's really interesting. 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 Thank you very much. And now let me welcome your co-author, David Herzl. David and I met on my personal radio show when I had both of you talking about the book in late 2016, I believe. And David, eh, we'll find out where he's calling from and all that, but David has selected a quote from Colin Powell. Colin Powell, young man born in 1937, it's easy for me to say, American statesman and retired four-star general in the U.S. Army. He was the first and so far the only African-American to serve on the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, the 65th U.S. Secretary of State, serving under President George W. Bush from 2001 to 2005, and again, the first African-American to serve in that position. Here is the quote David has selected from Colin Powell. There are no secrets to success. It is the result of preparation, hard work, and learning from failure. David Herzl, thrilled to have you on the show. How are you, David? I'm fine, and thanks for having here me here today, Bonnie. We are delighted. By the way, where are you? I know Brad is in London. Where are you calling from? Well, I'm talking from my home. I call it Sky Ranch in Pacifica, California. It's actually a condominium, but I call it Sky Ranch because when I look out my main window here, I'm looking at the Pacific Ocean, and if I stand on my tippy toes, I can see Japan. So I have a sky. <laughs> we got that. At least some of us did. Thank you very much. David, talk to me about the quote from Colin Powell, another very, very appropriate quote to our topic. So preparation, hard work, learning from failure. How did the people in the Antarctic, the early explorers, how did this work for them? It worked with a mixture of success. You know, but it's really, when I saw this, when I was thinking about this quote, it's kind of like the story of my life, but the story of my life I can relate to the, you know, these kind of struggles that they went to in the Antarctic, meaning in these days of heroic exploration, which is what our book really covers, that 
successes that they did find, they found because they prepared to the very best of their knowledge, limited as it was at the time, but to the very best of their knowledge as to what to expect, what they would need, what they would have to account for, who, how many people would be, and all that, and hard work. And I will tell you this, when you read these stories, you think whatever notion of hard work any of us may have today, it pales in comparison to what these fellows went down there and just did, that they just took on this job. And learning from failure, you can look at that and you can say, well, every expedition that went there that we look at was able to, in one way or another, to expand on what had happened before. And those that did not meet with success because of environmental conditions expanded into some, you might say, kind of different ways into the human spirit. So, so to me, uh, we're all learning and we're all learning all the time. And, and some of the lessons are hard, but they're well taken. Yes, hard but well taken. And I'm going to ask you the same question, David, that I asked Brad. Do you think today we've gotten lazy by relying on so much technology, which is exciting and it's exhilarating? Look at me. I've got this watch and I've got this headset and I've got these glasses and I'm going to go off on a trek and I'm going to conquer that local hill and pretend it's an Antarctic uh, exploration jog and, and all of that. Do you think that we've gotten lazy or we're just rightfully leveraging the tools that we have available today. What's your position on that, David? I don't think that lazy is the right word. You might The word dependent might be a more a fitting kind of word for this right here because when you look at uh, any kind of survival situation that we get in today, and I'm going to refer to our Antarctic explorers that get in today, well, yes, the, the, the weather is still cold and it's still brutal and it's still very dangerous. But when you get into trouble, you're a radio call to a helicopter, to an airplane, mm-hmm. someone to come and get you out. And if you broke your leg, or, you know, if something like that happened, you have a way to get out. And we're dependent on those things. And, and yes, that actually enables us to, to leverage ever greater realms of knowledge because we can send more and more people into the field. However... If you take away the technology that made that happen and just have them be in the field, we are so dependent, it's very few people would be able to survive in the way that the men did that were forced to in these stories as we cover them. David, what do you think allowed them to survive? Because I read the book, and it's just, I think the word amazing is so overused. Oh, she has an amazing dress. Oh, I love those amazing shoes. Oh, look at your amazing coleslaw. Amazing. That's just tempered the word down to dilution. I'm sorry, this is me editorializing, and I probably shouldn't. But this, it was truly amazing that they even survived, that we even have the stories that you and Brad Borkin unearthed and captured so beautifully in your book. So what do you think? Was it a core strength? Was it character? What was it that even let them tackle this in the first place and enough survive to bring back their stories? What, what's your opinion? I, you know, I think among, there's a bunch of different pieces to the answer to that question, but one of them is like an entirely different worldview that these uh, Edwardian people of that era had from what we have regarding work and self-sacrifice. So there's an entirely different worldview, uh, which would be like, well, sure, it's going to be hard. Yeah, we'll go down there. Yeah, you know, well, well we might die, but, you know, but that's part, of, that's part of the picture. It's what we have to do if we think that these goals that we're after 
are worthy of that kind of sacrifice. And I think the notion of that level of self-sacrifice, generally among those of us in, you might say, the, the Western civilized world, we're not as willing to put ourselves out on that. You know, and it has to do with, with comfort. You know, it has to do with survival. And it has to do mm-hmm. with how willing are any of us to get to the very edge of survival, to put ourselves into that place and see if we can get back. And when you look at, when you look at these things yes. that they did and what they accomplished with what in our modern view of things is so little in the way of resources and so much in the way of human spirit, and so it's, it, I think, the, the worldview, really. Like, what is my place in the world, and am I willing to do this? And there were a lot of takers back then. Wow. Thank you very much, Brad. I'm going to let you weigh in on this, and then we'll do what's in your cup today, and then we'll take a break. So, Brad, what's your thought? How did they survive? How did they succeed in as much of a measure as success as you could define, you as the author of this book? What, what's your, your measure of success, Brad, and how did they get there? Well, I, th- I think they had something, as David was saying, there's something that was driving them that was greater than just planting a flag. And there was planting a flag had a, was important to all of these. And, and, uh, but they were, they were also doing this for science. And there was a, they, they all felt a strong passion to advance science. So meteorology, geology, uh, and, uh, wind currents and ocean currents and, and all sorts of different types of, of science that they were going to do while on these expeditions. It wasn't just saying, let's just go from here to there and, and, and get there and back again. There was, and, and they took tremendous risks to achieve that science. Okay, so they had a high, high risk-taking profile. Okay, Brad. You're up first. You're up first. Where are you calling from? Okay. Uh, you know, we don't want the Google coordinates of the, of the roof of your house or your office. But in general, where would we find Brad Borkin today, and as usual? And what are you drinking today that makes you smile, or what would you rather be drinking, Brad? Okay, well, I'm, I'm calling from London, from London, England, and it's a beautiful sunny day. I know it's always unusual when people hear that, actually, London and sun go together, but they do, especially in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in months like June and July. Uh, so currently in my cup is, is water, but I thought I might tell a little story about what I would be drinking if I could, given if I wasn't working, which was, uh, uh, since Father's Day is coming up, I've asked my daughter to get me a bottle of Shackleton whiskey. And ah. the, the Shackleton, uh, the, the early explorers went down to Antarctica and built these huts on, on, uh, the continent and that on the coastline. And that's where they stored supplies and, and, and lived for various months or years uh, when they were down there um, exploring. And in Shackleton's hut, these huts are still standing, uh, but they're obviously the weather conditions are, are, are slowly destroying them. And so there's a big preservation effort going on to uh, maintain the huts. And Shackleton's hut is being actively preserved and in excavating the snow around it in 2007, they uncovered these three bottle, uh, three cases of whiskey, three large crates of whiskey. Yes. And then they took the whisk, they took some of the bottles back, sent it to a, to the distillery in, in Scotland, and the Scottish distillery has reconfigured that whiskey and has made it for sale. It's called Shackleton whiskey, 
So uh, hopefully on the this coming weekend, I'll have a bottle of Chardonnay whiskey. <laughs> oh my goodness! And are you going to drink it or just look at it? <laughs> Sorry, I had, I'm not a whiskey drinker, but I'll, I'm sure I'll have a few tastes and uh, share it around. So. Oh my! I'm looking this up. Yeah. There's a website, Brad, called thewhiskeyexchange.com. And it says, McKinley's Rare Old Highland Malts are recreations of the malt whiskey shipped to Antarctica in 1907 by the explorer Ernest Shackleton to fortify his Nimrod expedition. The story of how several wooden crates of this precious whiskey were abandoned to the Antarctic winter in early 1909, then rediscovered over a century later, is one that celebrates the enduring spirit of both man and malt. I love that. The enduring (laughs) spirit of man and malt. You can read about the journey and rediscovery on the site and how this whiskey was carefully recreate. So this is a recreation of the Shackleton whiskey. Very, very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. The Endurance of Man and Malt. That's something for the books. That's a, that's a new book for you and David. David, you, you already told us where you are and that the view is spectacular if you stand on your tippy toes. And David Herzl, uh, what are you drinking today or what do you aspire to drink? Well, in, in when I aspire to drink coffee, I, I tend to go to Scotland to the Cathedral Hotel Inn, where they have what uh, two separate excursions have convinced me is the most memorable cup of coffee that you can get on the planet. The first time I had a cup of their white coffee there, as I was a guest at the hotel, I said, well, this is by far the best cup I've ever had. And I went back again. That was when I met Brad, actually, two years ago. And I was in the same place again a couple weeks ago, and I had another cup of that and by golly, it was just as good and just as memorable. And my companion confirmed that. However, today I have plain old rocket fuel, inexpensive Folgers coffee in my cup. <laughs> we have a sponsor of our show, The Future of Cars with Game Changers. His name is Larry Stoley. I think Brad knows him well at SAP, and Larry is a Folgers fan. That's why he said, Bonnie, you know what I'm drinking. He's been on the radio with me for four years. Bonnie, you know what I'm drinking, my cup of Folgers. But... David. He has upgraded. He carries it around in a Yeti mug, which keeps the hot drinks hot and the cold drinks cold. Oh, that is so, I would say, adorable. Before we go to break, I know I'm, I'm pushing this out a little bit. Before we go to break, uh, David, how long did it take? Talk about, okay, extreme decision-making. So many people are authors today. Many people are self-published. And almost anybody can have a book. Not a good book, but almost anybody can write a book in, what, five days, 500 days. How long did it take you and Brad, when you met two years ago, to make the decision that you both shared such a passion for the Antarctic explorers, for the decision-making, for the extremeness, I made up that word, of the conditions and the frame of reference in which they decided their live or die, survive or not decisions. How long did it take the two of you to say, yes, we're going to get together and write a book. David, I want to get the story from both of you. It it took me about 10 seconds as we were introducing ourselves around the conference and Brad's talked up and of course we're all there because we love uh, this part of Antarctic history. And he said that he was looking for someone to co-author a book about decision making based on these stories. And the idea piqued me immediately. And so my thought was immediately, I have to go talk to this guy because I realized in all of my writing and researching and studying this heroic era in these stories, it's always from the outside looking at the stories. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it occurred to me in that instant, I think, that, uh, that this is a way of looking at the stories from the inside. 
that this could be a whole new lens way of looking at what I already knew well, and I thought, I've got to go talk to this guy, and I did at the first break, and, and uh, very quickly we decided, well, let's go for it. Very interesting. Brad, what's your version of the story? How long did it take before when David approached you, you said, he's the one, let's write the book. What did you think, Brad? Uh, yes, exactly. It, uh, it was instantaneous, the sense that we'd never met before, but we met at this Antarctic conference. I had had the idea for the book for a number of years in my, in my head, but I knew I could never do it without someone who had intricate knowledge of Antarctic history. I had knowledge of Antarctic history, but I didn't have the, the detailed knowledge. And also I needed, I, I felt having someone to work with would be, some, would create such a better book than just doing it on my own. And Dave and I, we, we, I'm in London, he's in California. We wrote the book over the course of about two years. Uh, and most of that time we never met. Everything was done by, you, know, you talk about old-fashioned stories, you know, old-fashioned, but we use modern technology, sort of communicating through Skype and email and all these different technologies to, to exchange ideas and exchange drafts and exchange. You know, we spent three months on the table of contents, just brainstorming what would, what wow. would be in the book and what would be in the, in the book. And then once we decided that, it, was, it just flowed from there. And it's been a great, wow. great, not only a great partnership, but a great friendship as well. Yes, and indeed. and it's also a long distance partnership, isn't it? Because Brad, you're in London, and David is way out there on the West Coast, so it's a long distance partnership, and it still worked, correct? That's yeah. right. We're eight time zones apart, and uh, we actually have some on our website www.extremedecisions.com with a dash extreme dash decisions.com. We have a few blogs where we we describe the writing process and um, and how we achieve this across eight time zones. And it, it more or less works, you know, because early, I get up pretty early in the morning here, which is still in a reasonable time of day there, and uh, so we can chat on the telephone as need be. And the exchange, I just want to mention this, is that uh, we decided 12 chapters, we decided Brad would take a certain six and I would take the other six, and then we would each write our chapters, and then we would send the chapters back and forth to each other for extensive edit and revision and uh, question and conversation until we reach the point where at least some of the chapters, uh, I look at them and go, did I write that one or did Brad? And I think really that's a, an ah. example of a, a really successful collaboration. Wow, that's very, very telling. Um, I interview a lot of new authors, as Brad knows, on my, my personal radio show on a different station on Monday nights. I meet them at a publicity gathering in the city where they pitch me, and very often there'll be two people that come up. It could be a husband and wife. It could be writing partners. And I'm as fascinated by the partnership and we'll talk about partnership and followership after the break. I know that's one of David's uh, topics we're going to talk about. By the partnership and in, in how they figured out that they would be good writing partners, that they both wanted to contribute, that they both put the same, if you will, the, the same ante into the pot to make sure that they both were do, pulling their share, pulling their fair share of the load and contributing equally to the book and how they succeeded without killing each other. So <laughs> on that note, I will just tell the two of you that all I'm drinking is cool, clear water and a cool, 
clear mug with a pink straw because, yay, the sun is shining here in New York. We are having a heat wave. Not going to go that. Thank goodness for central air conditioning. That's all I'll say. Fascinating conversation. When we come back, I'll be chatting more with David Herzl and Brad Borkin, co-authors of When Your Life Depends on It, Extreme Decision-Making Lessons from the Antarctic. This is the stuff. I'm, I'm addressing our listeners around. This is the stuff that you probably didn't cover in your early history classes if you're in the U.S. You might have heard a few names, dropped a few names, Shackleton and some other people. But you know what? This is really the deep details of fascinating stories. It's not just extreme decision-making. These are This is extreme storytelling. We're going to talk about, let me give you some of the topics we're going to try to cover in the next half hour. Uh, Brad says, early Antarctic expeditions were like startup businesses. Okay, that's a startup focus. The early Antarctic explorers were not perfect decision makers. And we're going to talk with David about learning from others' mistakes on the word followership, not fellowship, followership, on endurance and higher purpose, all of those great topics. So I'm Bonnie D. Graham speaking, thrilled and privileged to be speaking with Brad Borkin and David Herzl here on The Future of the Future with Game Changers Radio. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. I promise we'll be back. We will endure. So there, Kevin out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. An unprecedented pace of change, driven by exciting technology advances like the Internet of Things, is disrupting your industry and every other industry around the globe. Your future business success will be influenced by your ability to understand and harness these innovations and many more. Mobile devices instantaneously connecting the world populations, robotics, 3D printing, and self-driving cars. The sharing economy and ubiquitous global business networks. Reality Check. The future is happening right now. Join us for insights from industry experts on what it all means for your business and your daily life. The Future of the Future with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit SAP.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of the Future with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to the future of the future with Game Changers. Indeed, the future of the future. We're talking about when your life depends on it. Decision-making stories from Antarctic Heroes. That's our topic, but it's based on the book by Brad Borkin and David Herzl entitled When Your Life Depends on It, Extreme decision making lessons from the Antarctic. So a little play on words in there. Brad Borkin, we're going to start off the roundtable in earnest, not Shackleton, whiskey, with uh, the following topic from your notes. You say early Antarctic expeditions were like startup businesses. Brad, tell us more, and then we'll have David chime in. Well, yes. I mean, you can, you can easily make a comparison between modern-day businesses and modern-day startups and, and these early expeditions. I mean, they, the early expeditions... Basically, they, they set goals. They, they had to obtain funding. They had to go to numerous different sources to get funding. It wasn't just funded by governments. If anything, the government, either the British government or the Norwegian government, would give some money. 
but they had to go out to, to they had to find financial backers, much the way startups do now. And those backers were expecting a financial return. So they expected the expedition to be successful, to achieve their goals, to come back and, and repay them with, with, with interest. And, uh, and, but some of, that, some of that repayment might be slightly different than monetary repayment. It might be having a, a bay named after someone or a set of mountain, or mountain range or a, uh, a certain uh, uh, hut that they build on, on, the, on the ice may have a, a na- be named after a sponsor or the lifeboats may be named after sponsors. And, and so their names live on forever. Uh, and, and so there's, some of the ROI might be slightly different than a startup. But they had a higher personnel and they had to manage budgets. They had to buy raw materials and uh, get fin- and, and produce finished goods. So, in a sense, they were bringing down raw materials to the Antarctic and then overwintering, so staying through the whole Antarctic winter when the sun never rises above the horizon, mm-hmm. and uh, and maybe and fashioning uh, clothing or other supplies that they needed, uh, and for for the various parts of the expeditions. And they also brought down a lot of scientific equipment, so they had to acquire all the scientific equipment and, and scientific knowledge of, of what, they, what they wanted to achieve. And, and they had stated aims that often were decided beforehand that they'd agree with the Royal Geographic Society, with other, other scientific bodies in, in the UK and elsewhere. Okay, David Herzl, let's get your thoughts. David? Well, my thoughts actually uh, in the early 2000s, I was actually involved in an internet startup. And so I think about this, you know, that experience in terms of, of what we're talking about right here. And um, just a whole lot of, it's just true, like a whole lot of this stuff is going on. Because what do you have to do? You have an idea. You think it's a very compelling idea, an important mm-hmm. idea. And your job, you know, one of your first jobs is like salesmanship to go out and convince other people that, yes, this is a good idea that it's worth pursuing so that they'll put money into it. And so we can look at uh, certainly some of these uh, early expeditions, and it was a matter of getting the funding. And then you get the funding, and then you have this idea, this totally, uh, essentially untried idea, like, well, why don't we do this? And if we put a lot of resources behind it, we can, you know, we can take this to the next level. We can see what's going to happen. We can provide the groundwork for other things, bigger things that are going to happen after us. And all that's pretty exciting. And all that happens in modern-day startups uh, and in Antarctic, early Antarctic expeditions, more or less the same. And I was in my role in that startup was I was director of operations, so I had IT and HR, and uh, I hired everybody, and I I did all that kind of stuff. I was really hands-on in it. And our idea wasn't quite good enough to, or wasn't successful in attracting, you know, the necessary funding, and so I'm back mm-hmm. to doing what I do best. There you go. And tell us what you do best, by the way. You are you are a serial uh, biographer, is that correct? Oh, that's one of the things that I do. Actually, that's my avocation, and, and I do have to confess, I think I'm pretty good at it. But I love, I mean, that's just a matter of I love to read, and I love to study, and I love to learn, and I love to learn from history, and I love to put it all together into something meaningful that's got my, you know, attaches my vision to it. And in the case of this book, mine and Brad's together. So that's what I do. And and what I do to actually pay the rent is I do building design, which is a whole different, completely absorbing 
and wonderfully rewarding uh, endeavor. Interesting. And do you incorporate some of the qualities of the early Antarctic explorers from the early 1900s, David, which we're going to talk about in a minute. That's my perfect segue, so don't say a word. The segue is learning from others' mistakes, followership, endurance, and higher purpose. I know these are some of the qualities you wanted to talk about from the early explorers. So you can relate that to your building design business, or you can just let's keep it on the Antarctic explorer level. So, David, I'm, I'm moving this over to your side of the table for our next set of topics. Let's talk about on details and learning from others' mistakes first. Uh, details are important, you know, and in building design, building codes, planning codes, it's just unbelievably complicated. Once you get into it, it's just as complicated as any other endeavor you can possibly think of. And and one of the things that I do, and, and my girlfriend notices this, any building, any building that I ever walk into, I'm looking up. I'm looking at the ceiling. I'm looking at the windows and how the, the building, how the architect intended for the building loads to come together. And what am I looking for? I'm looking for building failures. I'm looking for the things that didn't quite work. I'm looking for the things of, of beauty uh, and, and, and structural, and really intelligent structural design. But I'm also looking for the things like, well, that didn't quite work. And I'm always learning from others' mistakes in that way in my, in my design business. And another aspect of that, that this, it relates to the Antarctic things in this way, just in the sense that you really have to prepare. And you have to prepare long in advance. And you have to learn from your own mistakes. You know, so, so being in the position I'm in today as the sole proprietor for this kind of business, it actually started with a with a plan 30 years ago that said, 30 years ago I said, in 30 years I want to be in this place. And here I am, looking out the window right here at Sky Ranch. There With, you go. Talk about having a plan. And, and uh, in particular, did you learn from others' mistakes in terms of making that plan happen? Uh, no. No. Actually, the plan, <laughs> what I learned from is actually, you might say I learned from things like Tom Crean's Long Walk, or which is the 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 return of the last supporting party from the South Pole in 1911. And, and it's sort of this. It's like you don't get there unless you walk there. You know, you're not going to get where you want to go unless you one foot in front of the other. And even though it seems like an impossibly distant, long way to go to the end of your journey, you don't let that, you don't let that stop you from taking this step and the next step and the next step and trusting that eventually, if you just do that, you'll get there. Okay. Brad, comments on this, learning from others' mistakes and details. What do you think, Brad Borkin? Well, that, that's right. And I think that the, uh, the expeditions had to be very detailed about what they were doing. It took them, it took them years to plan. And each expedition shared knowledge with each other, which was quite interesting because one of the interesting things, if you've seen the news recently, and we're reading about Mount, Mount Everest and expeditions where there, just recently there was an article saying that people were stealing air canisters, you know, the compressed air canisters that they carry up Mount Everest and stealing from each other's expeditions. That never happened down in, 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 in the South. So they were planning, they'd go on these expeditions, they'd share the knowledge with the next expedition team and coming back, so so Scott and Shackleton, even though Scott and Shackleton were rivals, they shared information, 
and even though Scott and Amundsen were rivals, and Amundsen sort of uh, underhandedly sort of sailed his ship, he was heading to the north, and he just he said, okay, well, Scott Cook and Perry have discovered the North Pole, the claim they discovered the North Pole, so I'm going to head south, and I've got a ship, and I've got men, and I've got supplies, and I've got dogs, and I've got everything I need to head to the South Pole, and I'm going to get to the South Pole before Scott does, even though Scott's already on his way to, the, to, to Antarctica. And yet, interestingly, there's a point at which Scott's ship sails by and sees, uh, they, and, and they see Amundsen's ship dock there, and they stop, and they, they spend the half a day exchanging pleasantries and, and things with the Norwegians and comparing ships and comparing supplies and, and all this. And, and yet, they were, they were rivals for what they were trying to do. And, and it's, it was just a, a different age and a, and a different different thing, but, but it all came out because they all had a plan incredibly, an incredibly detailed way to, to, to even just get to Antarctica in the first place. I'd like to kind of mention yes. one thing here, mm-hmm. which has to do with this, this notion of, of not stealing or not taking what's not yours, is that these different uh, expeditions that were walking to the South Pole, they would leave depots along the way that they would pick up on the way back, and that the the supporting parties would visit these depots also and take only their share of the supplies that had been left behind to pick up to make their way home. Even though some of these supporting parties were themselves on the very edge of starvation, and here's food, and here's more food than they could eat, but they take only their share, and when possible, they leave a little extra for the poll party to pick up on their way home. And that's a, a, a piece of kind of spirit and generosity that um, prevailed. This, this notion of like, like, no, that was my commitment. This is our commitment. Yeah. We can't take more. We have to do this. And when, there's another so part there, of the book was... where they had to lay out depots for Shackleton despite their, their completely um, um, circumstances that left them very difficult situation. So there's this kind of generosity in this like, no, I'll only take what's mine. I don't care how hungry I am. It's an important point. Very important point. And on that point, um, yes, learning from others' mistakes and details. David, I, I want to bring up this topic of followership. When you and I and Brad were on our prep call the other day, I said fellowship, and you corrected me. It's followership. I've never heard the word before. And I think it's a, a good segue from what you just talked about, taking your share. That means not being greedy, not being selfish, not putting yourself in the front of everybody else, but followership, teamwork, and camaraderie, all of those good words. David, can you define followership for us, please? Yeah, it's sort of like it's the flip side of leadership. And and to expand just a little bit, there's a lot of focus, there's a lot of attention to the notion, the concept of of leadership and what a desirable thing it is and of upward mobility and building your resume and so on. And my girlfriend Alice is actually second in command at the Institute for Leadership Studies at Dominican University. And so she and I have a lot of breakfast table conversations about this notion of leadership, the Shackletons and the Scots and the Amundsons, versus those who were not well-known, those who were content, who were proud to do just their job and not aspire to more you know, in their lives or in the more a higher position in the expeditions. And that would be the Tom Creens and the Bill Lashleys and the Taft Evanses. That would be the people who their pride and joy was to be in that role of doing their part. 
and not aspiring to more. And uh, there's, uh, there's a whole realm of conversation that can be made right about this bit right here. Brad, thoughts on followership? In the corporate world, Brad, how would you relate that? Well, in, in corporate worlds today, I think that a lot of organizations, they just assume everyone wants to move up in the organization. And they just assume that if you're not, if you don't have a great desire to move up in the organization and to lead and to be a manager and to, that therefore you don't have, you don't have enough uh, drive. You're not a driven person. And yet what was seen, and the reason the Antarctic expeditions were so successful, despite all the adversity and all the challenges that they had, was this sense that some people were leaders and some people were followers. Some people were, they weren't, they didn't aspire to leadership, as David said, but at times they could step up to leadership that when needed. And, and I think this sense that they were able to build very effective teams in the Antarctic, there's a lot of lessons in our book about team building and what this means, how modern businesses could build better teams if they follow some of the, the things that were done in uh, in the Antarctic in the early 1900s. And part of that is understanding that followership, that some people don't aspire to these greater roles. But mm-hmm. if you can make their, if you can empower them as much as possible in the role that they're happy doing, then that makes for a very successful team. Thank you both. I want to move on to something else here in your notes, Brad. I'm looking at what you sent me before the show. You say one of the great lessons, takeaway lessons from the Antarctic explorers of the early 1900s is they were exceptionally good at saying, quote, this is where we are today and this is how we will move forward. And your interpretation is they didn't dwell on the bad luck that happened to them. They didn't blame each other. They didn't blame the weather. They didn't say the dog ate my homework or my baby brother spit up on my my term paper. They were near death, and they still, I think the expression is they soldiered on. They had a goal. Do you think we see that enough today, Brad, or is it so convenient to say my cell phone died or my computer wasn't connected or I was in a bad Wi-Fi area, I couldn't do X, Y, Z? Do you think we're, we're too in, in immersed in making excuses today and we're not in that same spirit of this is how we will move forward, that forward view? What do you think, Brad? Yes, I think that's that's exactly right. That that we that to, we have a different mindset today than they had in in Antarctica, and I think there's a lot to be learned from 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 their situation. They they and and something you had said early on, and in one of the notes that I, I provided to you was that they didn't make great decisions. And I think one of the themes in the book is we're not holding these people up and saying this is how you make great decisions. Follow what these guys did; and they made great decisions, and now you'll become a great decision maker. If anything, what's most fascinating is that they actually made bad decisions. And sometimes they made really bad decisions. I mean, Shackleton made bad decisions. Different people made bad decisions. That's no secret. It's how they recovered from those bad decisions that they really did as a team, as teams, as leaders, as different people on the expeditions. They, they really took an attitude of that, okay, this is where we're at. And, and yeah, we can spend our, a lot of energy blaming Shackleton because he made the bad decision about not putting the boat into the first landing port, port spot that we saw. When he didn't choose the first landing spot, hoping to choose a better landing spot, the, the boat ended up getting uh, locked up in, in, in ice in, in, in the Weddell Sea, and, and ultimately the boat got crushed. And here they are stranded 
in the Antarctic. There's no hope of rescue. They've got no, nobody knows where they are. Nobody's going to come rescue them. And here there are 28 men. The boat's been crushed to smithereens. I mean, there is actually live, live they, they were shooting live video at the time. There's motion pictures. You can actually see the boat being crushed and the whole mast falling down. And it's just, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to watch and, and just know what these people must be thinking. If there's no ship, we've got no way of escape, and we're just going to die here. And that sense of, okay, how are we going to rally around and actually figure out a, a way out of here? And, and that sense of teamwork and leadership and, and camaraderie and, and just sheer grit and determination, all of those just moved together. And, and, and in the end, they all survived. <laughs> like, it's one of the most remarkable stories. You got you know, to uh, read it in the book. Is, it, it, uh, we, we go through it in more detail. But it's, just, it's a wonderful, wonderful story of survival and amongst tremendous amounts of bad luck. There's a there's a little piece of the story here that that happened right here at this Shackleton, the mm-hmm. crushing of the Endurance ship that Brad just related, and and it, it's one of the features, one of the aspects of our book, uh, one of the key points that we do make is like one of you know, one of the aspects that you want is to reframe the image of success, to reframe what the picture is, and so if you can picture yourself on the floating ice and your ship is literally crushed and it sank beneath the waves and you are, 28 of you here living in tents on the ice a thousand miles from, and no one knows you're here and no one knows this has happened. And what does Shackleton say? He assembles the men and he says, now boys, we're going home. And it's just Mm. that thought right there, like we take this unmitigated, unparalleled disaster to all of us and we just calm down, and we take a deep breath and say, okay, now we're going home. And uh, that is just like one of the key stories and one of the key uh, points that we make in our book, I think. Very interesting. And, and, and I, I have a quick question for both of you because we're just about ready for our predictions. But uh, you know what? I'll, I'll save my question for the predictions round. So, Brad Borkin, I'm going to circle back to you. It's a small table today, just the three of us. But nonetheless, I'm circling around the table to you, Brad, in London <laughs> and asking you, look ahead to 2020. You know, that's my favorite future year. It's only three New Year's Eves away. Does everybody, Brad, we think we know what Brad will be drinking that day for sure, that <laughs> evening. Uh, and, and we're not sure where he'll be, but we, we think it'll be Shackleton whiskey, but don't tell anybody. You've got to save that bottle, Brad, or at least a drop of it for, for, uh, for the experience, for the storytelling. Um, I'm going to ask this question specifically, Brad, for the future. Do you think lessons from the Antarctic heroes that you and David talk about in your book would be lessons for students today, young kids in elementary school, in high school, in terms of decision-making, in terms of working with extreme circumstances, in terms of team-building and followership and having a common goal and paying attention to details and learning from others' mistakes and keep moving one foot ahead forward for a goal that you reevaluate and feel is still worthwhile. So, Brad, what about these lessons for the future learning of our kids today? Let's frame the crystal ball for that, if you don't mind. Brad Borkin, 90 seconds. Go ahead. Okay, great. Well, that, that's, a, that's a perfect segue to what David and I have been talking about doing next. With okay. And there are several different things. One is to turn the book into a real business book. And the other is to turn, a, turn it into a book for teenagers. And there's so much, uh, having, having seen my daughter grow up and, and seeing her classmates and, and the challenges that they have in their view of the world 
they see so much adversity or they, they think they're seeing adversity. And for them to see that even if you have a set of bad luck, you, you're not going to have bad luck all the time. These, these men in the Antarctic survived bad luck after bad luck after bad luck. And yet, sooner or later, your bad luck turns to good luck. And, and you just persevere. And as David said, one foot in front of the next, step after step after step will get you there. And, and there's just so many wonderful lessons for, for teenagers that I, I really think it, it's, I mean, that our, our goal certainly is to, to see how can we take these stories further. Very interesting. So so that's a possible future project for you, too. I appreciate that. And, David, I have a whole, oh, my goodness, a whole two minutes. David, this never happens in this part, but Brad was so concise and so respectful. So, David Herzl, what's next for you in terms of how do you see the future of extreme decision-making, whether it's the reference of your book specifically or how do you think it will help us in the future? David Herzl? I think looking, I think one of the things our book does is it, it, it kind of brings us back and puts us in the current, modern, present day and puts us in literally into these situations where people did not have all these kind of digital connections and, and mechanical things that could save them. And I think that is the lesson, like, like how is this book useful or how can, how can it be used as what we need? I think what, in this current world, there's a lot of digital fracturization where through Facebook and things like that we think we have friends, we think we have thousands of friends, when really your friends are the people that are in the room with you. Mm-hmm. Your friends are the people that are in the situation, in your business, in your team. You know, that we need to kind of get back to where we refocus on the humanity of the people who are immediately with us and with who we make our decisions. And if our book or our or our future books can sort of guide that process, like back to, you know, what's important is who's in the room with you, who are you actually dealing with, and what will the consequences be if you can't get saved by having some situation that you, um, that you can be pulled out of. And so I think that's, what, that's the way I look at it in any way. Very interesting. Brad, what do you think? Brad, should we stop relying so much on uh, on the tools and the toys and rely a little more on instinct and camaraderie and conversation? And as David said, the people in the room showing up in support and seriously going forward together, marching to that same drummer, perhaps, or more or less the same drummer. Brad, what do you think? I can give you uh, 60 seconds for a wrap-up here, Brad. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think that, that having that um, and it all comes down, I think, ultimately to, to, to being part of a team and, and feeling like you're part of a team. And the other thing, just, just to wrap up as well, is, is this concept of higher purpose and having a real vision of what you're trying to achieve and, sense, and, and the sense that it's, it's not achievement to be in the book, book of the Guinness Book of World Records. It's, it's a, a purpose that's even higher than that. And, and for everyone to find that. And, and when you're on a team that's trying to do that, that, that adds a lot of meaning and purpose to people's lives. You can, have a, you can have a shared higher purpose that's bigger than all the people in the room. 
There you go. That's what we're looking for. Thank you so much to both of you, Brad Borkin and David Herzl. Pleasure to speak with you again. Their book, very interesting, great reading. You can read it one chapter at a time and share the stories with anybody, anywhere, your teens, your kids, your grandchildren, your parents, whoever it is. And the title of the book, Brad, give me the full title one more time. Sure. It's When Your Life Depends on It, Extreme Decision-Making Lessons from the Antarctic. Thank you very much, David Herzl. it's available on Amazon Worldwide. There you go. Go find it, and, and they're on Polar Decisions is their handle on Twitter. And I know Brad's going to retweet my 10 million tweets I just did during the show now. <laughs> I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Thank you so much for listening. A shout-out to Susan Walker, who works with Brad, and uh, Kevin and the Business Channel team at World Talk Radio, and David Herzl, pleasure to speak with you again. Keep writing, my keep building. Also. and keep look thank you keep looking out at the future off of that big cliff you're looking out of or wherever you are i'm bonnie d graham i'll be back in one hour with another live edition of smart cities of the future with game changers and we'll be talking about safety in the cities of the future so there it's a topic that will impact everybody so here's my call to action fasten your seatbelt. Boy, I wonder if they had seatbelts in the Antarctic when they were on those dog sleds. I sure hope so, while they were eating that last cracker and that last bite of chocolate. So what are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today, like Brad, like David, like Shackleton, like Amundsen, and all of the explorers. Use those lessons to move forward. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to The Future of the Future with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Engage your learning. Engage your network. Engage your future. The AICPA Engage 2017 event happens over four days, Monday, June 12th through Thursday, June 15th, at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Nevada. There are six conferences at the event, and you can attend one session, any session, or all sessions. Plus, if you can't make the trip, you can still take advantage of attending the event online. If you're in the accounting profession, this is a can't-miss event. Visit AICPAengage.com to find out more. That's A 